All right, so we're going to move uh, into our sermon. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 4 today while the PowerPoint's coming up. I'll just remind you that last week we talked about Acts chapter 3, and this is going to be a little a little mini-series where, and the overarching idea for these two chapters is that the power of Jesus to heal points to the power of Jesus to save. And we saw that moving in that direction in chapter 3 uh, with the healing of the man lame from birth. But then as we get into chapter 4, Peter is going to make explicit uh, this this reality that there is no salvation apart from the Lord Jesus Christ and that all of these works of power that God may perform at the hands of his followers, of his people, are intended to testify to this reality that Jesus is the one that fully and finally can save at the last day of judgment. And so let me uh, pray for us. Heavenly Father, I ask uh, for you to meet us here in this moment as we open your word. Father, this is your word, just like Pastor Keith said. This is not my word, not something I came up with. And I ask you to keep me from saying anything that is from me. But I, I pray that you'd help me to clearly communicate what you've Put in your word for your people to hear. I pray that you would make the application clear and that you would help us to live it out. Father, I thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit that you've promised to us, that you will empower us to speak your word. Uh, here in the pulpit and, and in the places where we live, the places that we work, Father, I pray that you'd make that, make that power a lived experience for every one of us here. Would you do it today in Jesus' name? Amen. Okay, so the big idea of the passage we're going to look at today is that the Holy Spirit empowers believers to testify to the power of Jesus' name, even in the face of persecution. Now, there have been many well-known studies done on phobias in America, and there have been... there have been a lot of them done. They've been popularized, and so you probably don't need me to tell you what is the number one fear of people in America. Public speaking. Public speaking. If it's the number one fear, that means that people are more afraid of public speaking than they are of death. They they would say, I'm more scared of getting up in front of a group of people and, and talking than I am of dying. Okay, so that's 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 quite a statement. Uh, Chapman University did one of these studies in 2014. I was, I was doing some research and, and reading, uh, in their study that they found that, uh, almost one in ten Americans are also afraid of strangers. Do you know in, in the New Testament, the word that's translated hospitality is xenophilos. Literally, it means the love of strangers. So we're called to biblical hospitality. We're called to love strangers. And also, very central to the heart of the Christian mission is the need to speak to people, and maybe even strangers, about the gospel, right? We've been, we've been studying Genesis on Wednesday nights. And we're, we're early on in the book. We're, we just looked at chapter three and we've been talking about the fall and how God created this good world where people enjoyed perfect intimacy with one another, 
But then when sin entered into the world, it destroyed that sense of intimacy. It destroyed a sense of trust, and it caused people to, Adam and Eve, they, they ran away from each other. They hid themselves from each other, right? And then they started making clothing to try to cover themselves. They created this breach of trust. So anyway, so I've, I've been thinking as I've been uh, working on this sermon and also thinking about Genesis, I've been thinking, you know, what God intends for his people Everything about the fallen creation makes war against what God wants us to be. God does not want us to be fearful of people. He doesn't want us to be fearful of talking to people. He doesn't want us to be fearful of strangers. But in our fallen human condition, and at one level we can say it's very natural to be afraid, right? Because of our fallen condition, we're we're afraid. And so anyway, and God is aware of this, and he, he knows that what he's asking us to do as human beings is scary. When we turn to Christ in faith, he has given us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit becomes a source of power that empowers us to be more than we're able to be in the fallenness of our flesh. And this is what this applies not just to taking the gospel to people, but also when we're talking about Christian living and living at a level of holiness and godliness that is above the level of what's possible in our flesh. That's why the Apostle Paul in First Corinthians, he rebukes the Corinthian church and he says, he says, when there's divisions among you, aren't you walking like mere men? He says, you're walking like natural, fallen, corrupt sinners. But that is not what you are because you've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And in the whole, the power of the Holy Spirit, you have real power and real ability to rise above uh, the level of, of mediocrity. And so the big idea where we're going is, is this emphasis that the Holy Spirit, this scary thing that God has given us to do to speak to people about Jesus and maybe speak to people that we don't know about Jesus the only way that we can possibly do that is if we're willing to yield ourselves and seek the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish it. So I'm not here to preach a sermon to tell you to try harder. I'm here to tell you that you're going to have to yield and you're going to have to trust God and seek him for that filling of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to try to define some of these terms as we move through the text. So, But point number one is that faithful proclamation produces a response for good or for bad. Peter... He's, he's faithful to proclaim in chapter three, right? He, God performs this miracle through his hands. He sees his opportunity and he begins speaking into it. Here's the response. It says, and as they were speaking to the people, uh, Peter and John, as they're speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them and they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. In the first century, you had these people who were kind of responsible for policing and making sure that the right people are teaching in the temple and that what's being taught is the right message, right? And Peter and John are guilty of both charges. It says that they, so the captain of the temple would have been second in command. He would have been in the hierarchy, hierarchy of the priesthood. He would have been second only to the anointed high priest. So so the captain of the temple and the priest and the Sadducees, 
they grab these guys, says that they're bothered, one, because they're teaching the people and they're not the right people to be teaching. And they're proclaiming in Jesus, there's the name, the name of Jesus. They're preaching in the name of Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. Verse 3, and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Pastor Keith, you spend a night in jail if you got 2,000 converts in a sermon? Oh, yeah. oh, we go to jail. We're okay with that. Uh, so I, when I read this, it reminds me of the Apostle Paul's statement in his letter to Timothy. He says, even though for the sake of the gospel I'm in prison, the gospel is not imprisoned. You can lock me up, but you can't stop the word of God because it's going to accomplish what God intends. And so that those first four verses set us up for the, the dialogue that's going to take place after this. It says the Holy, uh, so our second point is that the Holy Spirit provides power under pressure to proclaim the name of Jesus. So this is not just uh, Peter sharing the gospel, but this is Peter in the hot seat. And he's being uh, grilled about the things that he's been teaching. Verse 5, On the next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. Now, if you know the narrative from Luke's gospel into the book of Acts, if you remember the last time that we saw this high priestly family gathered, who was before them? Jesus, that's right. So Luke, he does something interesting here in chapter 4. It's almost like the trial of Jesus is reopened, and we're going to consider again the evidence against Jesus. The same people who tried Jesus are the same people that attempt to call Peter and John to account. And I love this because I love second chances. And this is Peter's ultimate second chance, isn't it? Because that first time when Jesus is standing before Annas and Caiaphas, where's Peter? He's out in the courtyard huddled among trying to blend in with people outside, bundled up by the fire, trying to convince a little girl that he's not one of the disciples, right? No, I'm not one of them, right? Because Peter, back then, he didn't have the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he was acting just like a person who doesn't have the power of the Holy Spirit acts. He was terrified, and he was hiding, and he didn't want to identify himself with Jesus. In fact, in, in Luke's gospel, it says that at Jesus' arrest, all of the disciples deserted Jesus. At that first trial of Jesus, there was no one who would stand for him. There was no one who would testify to his innocence, right? But this time is going to be different because he has sent his Holy Spirit. In chapter 2, Peter says that he has sent this promise of the Spirit to us. And now we've got power to stand and proclaim the name of Jesus. Verse 7, And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a deed, good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? He says, 
I know that's really not what this is about. Y'all really don't care about this man, whether he was healed. What this is really about, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That's a pretty good answer. So the question that they ask is, by what power or by what name did you do this? And this reminds us of Acts 1.8, when Jesus said, go wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. So by what power? Is it? It's the Holy Spirit. And in what name is it? It's in Jesus' name because we're his witnesses. And Peter gives his reply, and it says, filled with the Holy Spirit. So what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? I think this is pretty, uh, in the narrative, it's pretty obvious to, to us that it means that he was somehow uh, courageous and somehow powerful. And I think in, in evangelism, that's exactly what it means. So I would say, it means to be empowered by the Holy Spirit for proclamation, especially in difficult circumstances. Here in another verse or two, it's going to tell us that Peter answered with boldness. And boldness is kind of a key word in this chapter. And that word boldness in Greek, it means courage or confidence when circumstances might cause us to be otherwise. So, Boldness is courage in the face of frightening circumstance. Courage, boldness in the, in the, in the presence of, uh, high-ranking people who might have authority to do us harm. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be empowered by the Holy Spirit for proclamation, especially in difficult circumstances. Uh, now, so Luke uses this several times. Uh, and this fits with, I think I mentioned some last week that, that Luke sees the spirit, the Holy Spirit as the spirit of prophecy. And so over and over and over again, whenever people are filled with the Holy Spirit, the result is some sort of, some sort of speech event. So in Luke chapter one, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and then she exclaims with a loud cry, blessed are you among women. And she's referring, she's talking to Mary who has just come in and greeted her. And at the sound of Mary's voice, the baby leaps in her womb and she's filled with the Holy Spirit and she, and, and she just testifies. And so that this filling of the Holy Spirit, there's something, it's like this compulsion to speak. I need, I need to speak. I need to proclaim. So it comes out in the case of Elizabeth as praise, uh, in the case of Zechariah in Luke 1 67 says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and then he prophesied. And he's not so much predicting the future as he is praising God for what God is doing through the birth of John the Baptist and, and the, the promise of restoration for Israel that's coming through the birth of John the Baptist. Acts 2-4, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and then they began to speak in other tongues. And other people, people from different places are hearing them in their own languages. 
And when it describes what the content of what it was that they were saying, it says that they were praising and glorifying God. And so again, so, so, uh, so being filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking at the impulse of the Holy Spirit, it may not just be evangelistic. It may be praise, worship. Um, we'll go on. We'll see more. Well, of course, we have the one we're looking at, Acts 4, 8. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit, and then he gives his answer uh, with boldness. And then in Acts 4.31, we're going to look at that. Acts 13, Paul is in a confrontation with a magician called Elymas. And he, uh, it says, Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, be blind, basically. I mean, he, he curses him. And so there's actually an, an action that comes out of that filling of the Holy Spirit, but there's still that element of speech associated to it. You all with me? Okay, Ephesians 5. Uh, so even, so this is the Apostle Paul, not Luke, but a different author, but same, same concept. He says, do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then look how he characterizes being filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always for everything to God the Father. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then lastly, he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. There's a high correlation between being filled with the Spirit and proclaiming. Whether it's proclaiming the works of God, whether it's proclaiming the name of Jesus for salvation. So it can be evangelism, it can be doxological. And then Paul even connects it with righteous living, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that verse opens us up for Paul's lengthy discussion about Marriage and how husbands are supposed to love their wives like Christ loved the church and wives are supposed to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. And he says that is part of the spirit-filled life. So uh, the the spirit-filled life, living filled with the spirit, affects the way we live. But in Luke, particularly in, in the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, the emphasis is on proclamation, that the spirit of God compels us and empowers us to proclaim the works of God and the salvation of God in Jesus Christ. And uh, the book of Acts, Gospel of Luke, and specifically in the context of evangelism, we're talking about taking the gospel out. Being filled with the Holy Spirit means two things. It means having supernatural wisdom to see the opportunity to share the gospel. And secondly, it means the supernatural courage to step into that opportunity. And this is, in my own life, I would say the way that I most commonly have experienced this is when I'm having a conversation with someone and they say something and the Holy Spirit, I feel the Holy Spirit rise up inside of me. And I can see that there's something that may be what they said or it may be that I can see something behind what they said. I can see the need in their heart behind the words that they said. And I don't think that's me. I think that's the Holy Spirit that gives that insight. He gives that wisdom. And I see that there is something behind what they said that is the real issue. And then having the courage of the, and, and I feel the Holy Spirit saying, yeah, 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 get it, get it, get it, get, get it, you know, right? You gotta get in there. And, and that, that, that compulsion to, to step in and speak to that point of need that he's revealed. And, Far and away, I, I have very rarely ever had anyone get angry at me for going into that place. 
the majority of the times I've had people either say, thank you for saying that to me because they felt that it really spoke to their point of need or they've said, huh, you know what? I'll think about that. I never, I never thought about it that from that perspective. And so being filled with the Holy Spirit in those kinds of situations, I think that's what it, what it looks like. So seeing the opportunity, knowing what needs to be said through the wisdom of the Holy Spirit and then having the courage to step into that place and say it. Is that clear? And so the Holy Spirit gives us power under pressure. So Peter's in the hot seat. Jesus had promised to Peter that he would give him this kind of support. This is in Luke chapter 21, beginning in verse 12. Jesus said to the apostles, he said, before all this, and he's talking about the time of the end. He says, before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Doesn't sound like much of an opportunity, does it? So he says, since this is going to happen, settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. I will give you a mouth. And wisdom, which none of your adversaries would be able to withstand or contradict. And you see this kind of language used explicitly, especially when we uh, get into chapter 6 and 7, and we start looking at the martyrdom of Stephen. It uses this identical language to say they couldn't cope with his wisdom. He was too full of God's wisdom, and they couldn't withstand it. And he, they killed him because they couldn't withstand his wisdom. You get that? They were not able to answer him, and he just drove them crazy. So, but what he's not saying, he's not saying that you shouldn't know God's word, that you should just walk blindly into a situation and trust that you'll, you'll, he, he's assuming that you know the word of God, that you're full of the word of God. But he's saying that when it comes time for you to give your defense, you don't have to have a slick, polished presentation. You've just got to be ready to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit and speak the truth of the word of God to them, to that situation. So the, the argument that he's making is for courage to trust God. Right? But we, in our, in our, in our culture, everything mitigates against that because we're so terrified of public speaking, we're so terrified of strangers, apparently, that we think that to be a good evangelist, what's most important is that I have a slick, polished presentation. And that I'd be ready for every question. That's, that's, I hear people say that all the time. I don't want to share the gospel because I'm afraid people are going to ask a question I don't know the answer to. I can guarantee you they're going to ask a question you don't know the answer to. But if you're, because there's infinite number of questions they could ask. You can't be prepared for all of them. All you can do is trust the Lord and enter into that space and let Him give you the words and the wisdom. Sometimes you can say, I don't know the answer to that question, but behind your question, I hear something else. And, and the Bible, and I do know the answer to that. Mark thirteen eleven, a little more concisely, Jesus said, And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, don't be anxious beforehand what you're to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. So you've got to trust the Holy Spirit to give you words. So then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, He's got supernatural wisdom and he's got supernatural courage. 
He said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, then let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. And so he basically uh, repeats what we talked about last week, that through the name of Jesus Christ, this man has experienced this miraculous healing. But he says what God is doing through this miraculous healing is not about the man's physical condition. What it's really about is this, is that Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And this is synonymous with what he just said about you crucified him, but God raised him up. God gave you the responsibility, you religious leaders, you high priest. He gave you the responsibility to recognize the Messiah, to recognize this figure who was most central and most important to establishing the kingdom of God and and affecting the redemption of Israel and the salvation of all of humanity through faith in him, right? That was your responsibility. You really just had one job to do, and you, you blew it. He says... The rejected by you, the builders, he said, but even though you rejected it, God saw his significance and his value in his kingdom program. And God raised him from the dead and God has placed him at a central point. He has made him the foundation of all that he is doing in his redemptive work. So it doesn't matter that you, the builders, rejected him. God has raised him up and made him the cornerstone. And, the, and he says, and this is the significance of Jesus, that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, Peter is speaking to a Jewish audience. And so he's pro- they're, they're, when we hear that verse, we automatically think about our pluralistic context where you have Muslims and Buddhists and all these different world religions that are competing for uh, recognition as a legitimate way to, to God. Peter's audience probably didn't have that issue. But what Peter is saying is he's saying, you don't need to wait on any other Messiah. Because this one that God has sent, he is the one. There is no one else coming who is going to provide salvation for you. He is the one that God has provided. In chapter 3, you may remember that uh, Peter quoted Moses. And he said... Moses told you that God was going to raise up a prophet like me from among your people and that you better do everything that he says. And he said, the one who does not do everything that he says is going to be cut off from his people. Part of what Luke is showing us in the book of Acts in these chapters is this process whereby the the high priest and the leaders of Israel are being cut off. The way that the church is growing like wildfire, thousands are being added to their number, and the leaders of the new or the true Israel are the apostles. God is raising them up to take the place of these of these high priests, and they're going to be uh, lead the true Israel. And, uh, of course, as we move on through the book of Acts, we're going to discover that the true Israel includes a lot more than Jews, right? And it's... Uh, it's not just a surprise to us, but it's a surprise to the the apostles themselves. They would have never expected that God's mercy was so wide that it would include Samaritans 
and that it would include Gentiles. And so, but he says, for all those people, there is salvation in no one else. He said, there's no other name. And this certainly does have application to our context because we do have a lot of people, uh, a lot of different groups competing uh, to, to say that, well, you know what? But most of them would say, you know what? Christianity is good, but I think that our way is just as legitimate, right? That's what the, the Hindus are doing. Uh, we, we're, we're fine with Jesus. We've already got a billion gods. What's a billion and one, right? <laughs> so they have no, have no issue with adding on another one. Uh, Mormonism is, they would confess faith in Jesus, but the way that they define Jesus and his relationship to God the Father is less than Christian, and we can't accept it. So there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And this is not, I mean, even in mainstream Christian circles, this is a really, really difficult idea right now. We have a lot of, a lot of people that I think are genuinely believers who are really wrestling with this and they, they want to offer other options. Like maybe, maybe there's some way that God saves people that we don't know about, right? We're limited people. Maybe, maybe we just don't know all the possibilities. Maybe there's some way that God could do that. If we open up the door, for salvation outside of Christ, we have no gospel to preach. There's no no reason to preach the gospel to people and tell them that they must turn to Christ in faith to be saved if we believe that there's some loophole. If there were another way, believe me, friends, God would have revealed it in his word. And the overall message of the New Testament is that God has shut up uh, all in sin, so that he might show mercy to all. That's what Paul says in Romans, right? And in Galatians. He says that God has closed up every avenue uh, for people. He, he, is, he has condemned the whole world under the system of sin. And then he's provided for the redemption of all through this one person, Jesus Christ. He never hints at another possible way. And uh, he says, there is none righteous, no, not one. I think about Sodom and Gomorrah when God goes down and he, he's on his way down to Sodom and Gomorrah and uh, Abram begins to haggle with him and say, oh, wait, now you're going to wipe them all out? What if you find 40 righteous people down there? Would you, you wouldn't wipe out 40 righteous people, would you? He says, you know what, if I find 40, I'll let it slide. He says, well, what if you find 35? What do you know? And they start bartering. They're Middle Eastern bartering is what they, they enter into this haggling contest. And, and finally he gets them down to like five. He's like, is there just five down there? Well, when God gets down there, does he find five? He doesn't. And, and Abraham said these words to God. He said, he said, will not the judge of all the earth do what's right? And so there's one sense in which we certainly can trust God that if God comes across a righteous person at the final judgment, they're going to be saved. But the overwhelming message of Scripture is that when the last day comes, God's not going to find any righteous people because there is none righteous, no, not one. So all God's going to find at the last judgment is sinners. And though there are going to be those who have turned to Christ in faith for the forgiveness of sins, and there are going to be those who have not. And so at the last day, there's only, there's only two resurrections. That's another evidence, right? Jesus said, there's coming a day when all who hear the voice of the Son of Man will come forth from the tombs, some to a resurrection of life, 
and some to a resurrection of judgment. The Bible only presents two ways. Point number three, the power of the Spirit renders the powerful powerless. There's some clear irony in this passage where Peter and John, these uneducated laymen, they are speaking with all of this moral authority and all this prophetic authority that they get through the power of the Spirit, while the people who have official authority, they would love to kill these guys just the way they killed Jesus, but it says they're powerless to do so. And it says it in several different ways. We'll see it. Verse uh, 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, again, that confidence in the face of uh, high-standing power, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So the power that they're speaking with is not because they went to seminary. It's not because they made it through the best rabbinical schools. These were not students of Gamaliel. I think Gamaliel was probably there, and he said, you know, I don't recognize those guys. I don't think they were in any of our rabbinical schools, but they sure are speaking with power and with wisdom. And then they say, you know what? I think I think my slave girl told me that this guy was with him. He re- they recognized Peter and John, actually in John's gospel, it says that Peter and John were both there in the courtyard. And so they recognized these guys as associates of Jesus, which for their health and welfare, that's not a good thing, right? Because Jesus was public enemy number one. And so the picture that Luke is painting is that as these guys are being raised up, they're taking, they're following in Jesus' footsteps. They're preaching Jesus' gospel and they are moving into the same crosshairs that were on Jesus. And so these guys are astonished. It says, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, I love this too, they had nothing to say in opposition. This man who had been healed by Peter, he didn't, in in John chapter 5, there is an interesting story, another story of a guy lame from birth. He receives healing from Jesus, but Jesus comes to him after the healing and he says, Go and sin no more so that nothing worse happens to you. And that guy, he does not stand up to testify for Jesus. He goes to the Pharisees and he says, uh, by the way, it was Jesus who did that. Uh, here's his address. You know, like, like he's, he's totally throwing Jesus under the bus because he's willing to accept Jesus's power to heal him, but he's not willing to accept Jesus's authority to tell him how to live his life. But this guy, he is, he is on board. He says, ah, man, I'm healed. I'm walking for the first time in my life. I'm worshiping in the corporate uh, temple time for the first time in my life. Says they had nothing to say in opposition. What could they say? This guy's there giving testimony. Yeah, I was crippled my whole life and now I'm walking. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another. And so they say, what shall we do with these men for that a notable sign? It's interesting that they use that word, a notable sign. A sign means a symbol pointing to Jesus as who he really is. A sign from God. A notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. 
now, in, in Greek, the word that means cannot, it, the root of it is the same uh, word for power. So the word that's translated power here is dunamis, and the, the Greek word for I, I am able means is dunamai. So the same root. So it has this idea of ability. And you see this word all over the place in this passage. They say, uh, yeah, sorry, said, said they had nothing to say in opposition. What shall we say? We are not able to deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. When they had further threatened them, they let them go. And here we go. Finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For this man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This guy had been sitting at the temple gate for 40 years. Well, well-known fixture. There was no way they could deny this. So they're powerless against the power. They had nothing to say. They were not able to reply or respond. We cannot deny it. They couldn't refute it. They found no way to punish them. They had no way to react. Nothing they could do. And then I love this. So he says, back to verse 19, it says, When Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you be the judge, for we're powerless too. We cannot. This is dunamis here. This is dunamai. I'm not, we're not, in, in Greek it's literally, we are not able to not speak of what we have seen and heard. The name of Jesus is too great. The name of Jesus is too mighty. He said, we'd love to accommodate you, but we're not able to stop because we are under the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we find these men who can't stop speaking. They speak with power and wisdom from God. And we find these authorities who would love nothing more than to kill them. And yet they can't do anything. All because of God's, God's sovereignty. And that's our, where we're headed. Believers must pray for power in the face of the world's hostility to the name of Jesus. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voice together to God and said, but hold on. They go back and they tell it to their friends and reported it. Now, do you do you think they're scared or do you think they're courageous, terrified? They're they're they're. I mean, in themselves, they are fearful, and so they cry out to God together. They say, "Sovereign Lord," this is important too. This framework of God's sovereignty, seeing the world through the lens of God's sovereign care for your life, is essential to walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. The sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, he said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord, or I'm sorry, the kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So they're quoting Psalm 2 which is a, a messianic psalm talking about how the nations and the, ru- the rulers of the nations 
gather together and, and plot how they can cast off the authority of God's king. And so they quote Psalm 2, and they said, For truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of God. So he is pointing back in their prayer. They're, they're thinking back to when Jesus stood on trial before these people. And he says, then they gathered together, just like this psalm says, Herod, who Herod would have been considered the king of the Jews. He had a little bit of Jewish blood in him, and so the Roman authorities put him as king over Judea because they thought a guy who knew the Jewish customs could keep order a little better. And so he was considered, he took the title to himself, king of the Jews. A lot of Jews didn't like it because he wasn't pure-blooded. Uh, so, so Herod, the king of the Jews, Pontius Pilate, the governor who represents the Gentile rulers, along with the Gentiles and along with the people of Israel. Okay, so in the first century Jewish world, how many groups does that leave? Zero. So Herod, the ruler of the Jews, Pontius Pilate, the ruler of the Gentiles, the Gentile people and the Israel people, that's everybody. So what he's saying, what they're saying in their prayer is that truly in this city, they gathered against your holy servant Jesus, everybody. The Jews, the Gentiles, all of their rulers, all of them got together and they plotted against the Lord Jesus Christ to kill him, to murder him, to do. But they said this murder was actually whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. O sovereign Lord, who's in control of everything, even though they thought that they had all the power, even though they thought that Jesus was in their grip. In fact, they were in the grip of a sovereign God who was directing all things according to his will to give up the life of his son so that he might redeem the life of the world. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. God, we're terrified. We're in a scary situation. And if you don't empower us, we are going to fail. But we believe that you can empower us. We believe that you can. We believe that you will. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through your name of your holy, of the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I'm going to wrap it up. Last one. The Holy Spirit provides courage to continue preaching the name of Jesus. Verse 31 says, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. If you are scared of taking the gospel to risky places, and you know what? Frankly, we could go out here to the hood, and it's a lot less scary to preach the gospel to somebody who is in poverty, who is down and out. It's much scarier to me to go over to Highland Park. And, and you know why? Because people in Highland Park, they'll tell you, I don't want to hear it. I can't stand it. And I was you wouldn't, right? Whereas people over here who are, who are living in, in poverty and a lot of hardship, they need some hope and they are hungry and ready for a message of hope. People in Highland Park, they've got all their money. They've got all their nice things that insulates them against any sense of their own need and they don't need your Jesus.
Okay? You get what I'm saying? We, but we're called to take the gospel into risky places. And if you're scared, you're in good company. Right? The apostles and the church that has walked before you has been scared. But we don't, we don't deny that it's scary. But we confess that in the midst of fear, we need the power of God to compel us to step out and to take the gospel to those scary places because there's nobody on the face of the globe that doesn't need the gospel. And we've got to find ways to get it into every nook and cranny of this city. And that's our calling. That's our mission. And we can't allow ourselves to get sidetracked or get distracted with any other mission because that's what we're about. Amen? So your application is that. Ask the Lord to give Holy Spirit power for sharing the gospel even in risky places. Do you believe that Jesus is the only way to God? You need to get that down in the core of your being. I hope everyone here believes it. But if you if you need to know for sure that people need Jesus. And secondly, do you sense your need for Holy Spirit power in evangelism? I want us to repent from relying on slick polished presentations on on canned approaches i want you to to think about what it would look like to be full of the holy spirit and be willing to step into those risky places and listen to what the other person is saying and listen to the whole for the holy spirit to tell you how you can speak gospel truth into their life situation that sort of organic natural relational approach to evangelism is the most effective always has been and always will be and god will give you the power to do it amen heavenly father lord i pray for your power to come upon us i pray that we would be a proclaiming people father that you would give us the nerve uh to take the gospel to places where it might be rejected father would you give us uh, sensitivity also, would you help us to, to be a people who step into these places and who hear what other people are saying and that we're willing to, to speak life to the places of their hurt. Father, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would give us wisdom to discern the deepest needs of people's hearts and that you would give us courage to, to speak into those deep needs. God, and trust you with the outcomes. Father, we pray for the evangelistic ministry of City Church Garland. We pray, Father, that you would uh, fill us with a sense of urgency, God. Cause us to to be a people possessed by the need to to share the name of Jesus, God. Cause us to be a people who, who know and believe that there is salvation in no one else. And cause us to be a people who, who understand that our life's calling is, is to is to extend that invitation that Michael Kirshner talked about to invite people in to receive the bread of life to enter into the covenant by the blood of Jesus you stand ready father to extend forgiveness of sin to everyone who comes to you by faith in Christ we thank you for that god your mercy is great we do not deserve it we freely receive it In the name of your son, Jesus, and we ask you to use us for your glory. It's in his name we pray.